For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So Romans 1, verse uh, 1 through 17, which I entitled The Good News of Salvation. <clears throat> and I want to do a little bit of an intro to the book before we, we launch into it. Usually, we like to give a little bit of background to the book whenever we start it. I think, first of all, the author seems pretty obvious. The Apostle Paul claims that he wrote this book in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And most scholars agree that Paul wrote this. There's not much debate about it. The audience, it's very interesting. We know from verse 7 that Paul addressed this to the Romans. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now, the interesting thing surrounding this was that the early church fathers don't really know who started the church at Rome. There is indication in the letter itself that Paul had never even visited Rome before, and there's no evidence to suggest that any of the apostles planted this church. So what many people think, and I think there's good reason to believe this, that what happened was on the day of Pentecost, which Luke outlines in Acts chapter 2, that many of the believers who came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and Pentecost came to Christ and stayed there for a number of months. And probably many of those people were from Rome. So as they sat under the apostles' teaching and as they got equipped in what the Bible said about Jesus, they then went home to Rome and probably planted a church there. Now, there was an interesting development that we learn about that in history where Claudius, the emperor at the time, around AD 49, according to the Roman historian Suetonius, expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. Now, this is probably a misspelling in Greek. What he probably meant to spell was Christus, which means Christ. So apparently Claudius expelled not only the Jewish people, but also the Jewish Christians who came back from Pentecost having met Christ. And at that point, the non-Jewish believers in Rome sort of took over the church. And at some point later on, the Jewish believers came back into the city, and we find out that they were in the minority. So one of the themes that comes up in this book is that there is a lot of disunity between the, the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers. That's a major theme that comes up. So it's likely that Paul is addressing both Jewish believers and Gentile believers in this letter. <clears throat> the providence, Paul probably wrote this book in Corinth. We know from Acts chapter 20 that he spent several months in Corinth. And most people think that he probably wrote Romans while he was there. And there are a number of indications that Paul was writing in Corinth because at the end of Romans, uh, the, or the letter of Romans in chapter 16, Paul makes mention of how he commends this woman, Phoebe, who's a deaconess, and he says that she's from Kentria, 
which is near Corinth. And then he also mentions this other guy, Gaius, who he says, this guy sends greetings to you. And a lot of people think that this is the Gaius who Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. So there's some, re- some thinking that he probably wrote it around that t- uh, in that city. The date. Most think that this happened probably around 55 AD. And there are a number of reasons for that. But if you accept an AD 33 date for Jesus' death and sort of a crunched up chronology of Paul's missionary journeys and acts, I think the best date for this book is around AD 55. So there's sort of a, a basic intro to the book of Romans. Now, let's start looking at our passage. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul says, I'm an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So, Paul identifies himself, and he says that Jesus called him as an apostle and set him apart for the gospel. Now, this word gospel is sort of a church word. It's nonsensical to us today because we don't use it outside of the context of church. But in Greek, it's just the word euangelion, which means the good news. So you might be scratching your head wondering, what's good, what does you know, the Bible have that would be good news? Because most people, when they think about the Bible, they associate it with doing good things for God or trying to live a righteous life. Or a book that causes people to look self-righteously at other people. And yet, one of the things that we see from cover to cover is that God loves the human race. But there's a problem. The human race stands at odds with God because of our moral wrongdoing. We've estranged ourselves to God because we've done things that offend him. And because God is perfect and we are imperfect, he can't be in a relationship with us. So that creates a dilemma because God, though he's just, also is a God who's incredibly loving. And so what what is God supposed to do about that? On the one hand, he needs to uphold justice in the universe, can't turn a blind eye to evil or wrongdoing. But at the same time, the Bible describes him as this merciful God. One of the things that really puts all of this together is this concept of substitution. And it's a concept that God introduces in the Old Testament to describe what he would eventually do through his son Jesus. That Jesus was God with human flesh and that he came and died as a perfect substitute for us. Now this concept, it's pretty hard to understand and wrap our minds around. I know that as I was investigating Christianity, it was really difficult to understand why Jesus died. I mean, I grew up going to church, and I remember hearing this message, Jesus died for you, but then I always wondered, well, what's the point? I think everything sort of came together for me after I heard this awesome analogy of the righteous judge. You know, imagine there was this judge in this rural province, and this judge was renowned for his justice, 
Anytime somebody did something wrong, he gave just the right punishment. Not too harsh, not too lenient. And so he was a person who was regarded as very reputable. And so one day, as the plaintiff, or, or as the bailiff gives the judge this docket of the cases he's going to look at for that day, he opens it up and sees that the first case is manslaughter, vehicular homicide. The defendant apparently got drunk, jumped in a car, and uh, ran down this, this woman crossing the street. And so as the double doors of the courtroom open, the judge can only see the silhouette of the defendant being escorted by the sheriff. And as he comes into the light, he realizes it's his own son. Okay? Now, in modern courtrooms, they, you know, the judge would recuse himself. There's no way he would ever try that case or, or um, judge that case. But let's just say it's a very rural town, right? <laughs> so there's really no one available except for this guy. And so it creates this incredible dilemma. What is this judge going to do? On the one hand, he must uphold justice, right? He can't, he can't overlook what's, what's happened, even though he loves his son. So as they go through all the, the proceedings, it becomes clear, not only from physical evidence, but also eyewitness testimony that his son actually committed this crime. And so the town, of course, curious about what's going to happen, show up in mass, and on the day when they're going to decide his fate, the judge slaps down his gavel and says, guilty. And of course, the, the courtroom breaks out in um, discussion about what happens. And as there is all this commotion going on, the judge goes into the witness box and, you know, he takes off his robe and he, and he stops everybody talking and he says, but I will serve the sentence for my son. And I remember hearing that for the very first time, that story, and it just clicking for me that this is exactly what God did. He's not only the just one, but he's also the one who justified, as Paul later says in Romans. And so likewise, God put on human flesh. The limitations of that in the man Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died on our behalf in order to pay the moral debt that we all deserve to pay. And in so doing, God has given us the opportunity to be able to experience his forgiveness free of charge. That's the great news of the message of Christ is that, you know, we don't have to work toward God. We don't have to try to pay off our moral balance. There's no way we could do that anyway because we stand guilty. But God has done it all for us through Jesus Christ. And so it's simply by placing our faith in what Jesus did that allows us to experience salvation. So that's really good news. But it still raises the question, how can we believe this? He says in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul, right from the beginning, is starting to give the Roman believers and, and probably a mixed audience of Roman non-Christians who are there some evidence about Christ. And he says, look to the Old Testament and see what the prophets say about this good news and the Messiah. Um, 
I remember hearing for the very first time that there was actual evidence for Christianity. I just thought to myself, how does that make sense? When it comes to religion, it's all about faith. And when I thought about faith, it was blind faith. It's, it's a feeling that you get. It's something that you do to soothe yourself. And yet, I was surprised when people started laying out evidence, particularly Old Testament prophecies that detailed the life of Jesus and his career on earth. In fact, some Christian scholars estimate that there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that talk about the Messiah, God's chosen one. He says in verse 3, regarding his son who, is, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. So Paul says this individual, the Messiah, God's chosen one, he had to come specifically through King David's family line. Now to us that doesn't seem very important, but to a Jewish audience, they would have understood exactly what Paul was talking about. When you go all the way back to Genesis, God created a people through Abraham and his descendants. And then he narrowed it down a little bit more and he chose from Abraham specific individuals like Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob's family, God chose one of his 12 sons, Judah, and said, the kings of Israel will come from this family line. And that's where David appeared. And eventually God came to David and said, I am going to establish my chosen one through your family line. So that was one way the Jewish people were able to verify whether or not somebody was actually making legitimate claims to be the Messiah. They had to have come from David's lineage. Otherwise, anybody could claim that they were God's chosen one. And interestingly, the Old Testament actually predicts that David's family would bear the Messiah. <clears throat> Take, for example, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne from that time on and forever. So I want to try to direct your attention to a few details here. First of all, it's very clear from this prophecy and others like it that this chosen one or the Messiah will be a human being. After all, he says, for to us a child is born, a son is given. So this individual will appear on earth as a human being. And that was important because what we'll see later on is that the Messiah's career required him to be a human being. If he was to sacrifice himself as a substitute for human beings, then he needed to become like us to identify with us as, his, as a substitute. <clears throat> but it's interesting because this passage also indicates that he was much more than a man. He was also a divine being. He says, he calls him mighty God. Now, if you're familiar with Jewish teaching, the, one of the worst things you could possibly do is call somebody God when they're not God. Jewish culture is an extremely strict monotheistic culture. <clears throat> 
In fact, you look at examples like in the book of Revelation where John the Apostle, after receiving the revelation from the angel, attempts to try to worship the angel by prostrating himself, and the angel stands him up and he says, I'm a servant just like you. Praise God and worship him only. So there was a lot of paranoia about anyone making claims to deity if they weren't God. Now, these titles, because he strings them all together, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, interestingly, all of these are used in reference to God in Isaiah. And so it's very clear from the context in Isaiah's language that this individual, the Messiah, would not only be a human being, but also he would be divine. And again, that makes sense if you think about Jesus' career. I mean, even if he was a perfect man, which would be very difficult to accomplish, if he died and yet was only a human being, then he would only be able to substitute himself for another human being. Yet, since he's divine, he was able to die for the entire human race. So it's essential that Jesus both be a human being and divine at the same time in order to be an adequate substitute for human sin. Also, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be born in the same town as King David. Look at Matthew 2, verse 1 through 6. It tells us, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And when Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, quoting Micah 5.2 in the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This was the town where, where David was born and was raised, and Micah was actually written hundreds of years after David died. So he was not referring to David here, but another individual who would arise, God's Messiah. Now, you think to yourself, it'd be very hard to fabricate that or to, to cause yourself to be born in a city, right? And <clears throat> if Jesus was making a false claim to be a Messiah, they would know instantaneously whether or not he came from Bethlehem or whether he was born elsewhere because the locale of Judea was very small. So they would have been able to discredit him early on in his ministry if he was lying about this. In verse 4, Paul also says, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the prophets not only predicted that Jesus would come from the line of David, but also that Jesus would die and be resurrected or raised from the dead sometime later. And again, we can look to the Old Testament to verify or gain evidence for this, this uh, view. Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament, in many occasions, predicted the Messiah would suffer and die. You know, when Jesus was crucified... In Matthew 27, verse 46, as he was 
near death. Matthew tells us about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And commentators obviously wonder, why did Jesus say this? Some, some actually would say that Jesus was losing his faith when he was on the cross. But actually, he was quoting an Old Testament passage. Back during Jesus' time, they didn't have chapter and verse, verse divisions like we do today. That was introduced later in the 1500s AD. And so, Jewish boys from a very young age in Jesus' time would memorize large portions of the Old Testament. They were so familiar with this that just even hearing the first line of a passage would instantly bring to mind that passage and they could quote it from memory. <clears throat> he was quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now it's interesting Actually, the, the psalms were often set to music. I don't know if you've ever read through the psalms, but there are these uh, strange, like, instruments that are supposed to accompany the psalms as they're sung in worship to God. So, it was kind of like hearing your favorite song that you grew up listening to, right? They would have known that. And it's kind of the same thing where you're, like, sitting in the car and... Maybe you're, you turn on the radio and you hear the first lines of a song and instantly you can probably quote the artist and maybe even the song, right? For example, you know, you, read, you hear this, just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. You're like, who is that? It, it, would, it would instantly come to mind, you know, this is Journey. Don't stop believing. And uh, you might be wondering why Steve Perry looks like my cousin, but um, <laughs> that's actually the new lead singer. So you can imagine that the disciples, the people who are standing at the foot of the cross, as they hear Jesus quoting the first few lines of Psalm 22, they would have instantly started to think to themselves, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they, they, it would have immediately brought to mind this passage that they probably had memorized. It's interesting, when you look further down in verse seven and eight, David says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. <clears throat> you know, this, if you know the, the crucifixion account, this really, I think, mimics what you see with the religious leaders and the bystanders who were walking past Jesus. They were hurling insults at him, almost saying verbatim what Psalm 22 said. He saved others, but he can't save himself they said. And yet the real irony is that God could not save his son if he intended to save the human race. He says in verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Obviously, David is using 
a metaphor here. He's not talking about these men being literal bulls with, you know, a bad attitude or something like that. But that these individuals were strong men. And what he's referring to is that there's a locale in Israel called Bashan, which gets quite a bit of rainfall, which Israel, if you know, is a semi-arid area. And so this area, Bashan, was actually known for its cows because they were well-fed because of the vegetation that grew up in that area. And so this was a picture of these strong men who captured Jesus. Later in verse 16, David describes these men as a band of evildoers, dogs, which was a pejorative term used for Gentile people, non-Christian people. And that would exactly fit the picture of what happened at the cross where Jesus was surrounded by Roman centurions as they were crucifying him. Verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax that is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A few details here. First of all, he says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. If you read the crucifixion account, they flogged Jesus before they actually crucified him. And if you know anything about Roman flogging, I mean, it was this incredibly brutal and, and violent act where they would have this cat of nine tails which contain on the ends of these leather uh, throngs pieces of bone. Um, sometimes it would have pieces of metal. And as the centurion would flog the victim, large ribbons of flesh would separate from the victim's back and there was huge amounts of blood loss that occurred. And, and a lot of times the victims died before even getting to the cross. And so Jesus probably had massive blood loss as he was up on the cross and, and as a result was dehydrated. It's, it says, my heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. In 1986, the uh, American... Uh, Medical Association actually did a study on crucifixion based on the gospel accounts and also extra biblical accounts of crucifixion. And they found that in the majority of cases, victims of crucifixion actually died of massive uh, heart attacks, in part because they had so much blood loss that their heart was unable, unable to pump blood to the vital organs in the person's body. And he says, all of my, bo my bones are out of joint. And you can imagine this being a description of the crucifixion where the Roman centurion would take large spikes, like railroad spikes, and pin the victim's wrists and his feet to the cross. And what this did was it, it made every single breath that the victim breathed in very painful. Because the victim either had to pull up on his wrists, which had the spikes attached to the cross, or he would have to push up on his feet that were nailed to the cross. Meanwhile, his back that was just completely flayed from the, from the flogging would rub up against this rough cross. Victims, in some cases, would, would live for days as buzzards would come by and eat them while they were alive. 
One of the crazy things is that um, the Old Testament also predicts Jesus' resurrection. Um, Oh, here in uh, verse 16, he says, um, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Again, this seems like a clear depiction of the crucifixion. Now, some might say maybe Jesus sought to fulfill this psalm or maybe his disciples made it up. A couple problems with that is that, first of all, Jesus was incapable of causing himself to be crucified. First of all, because the Jewish people often stoned people that they were enacting capital judgment upon. Secondly, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Roman authorities. And so they, they did not have the authority to crucify someone. And that's why Pontius Pilate, the procurator of, of Judea at the time, was the one responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. In terms of his disciples making up this account, that doesn't really make much sense because if you look at the early church fathers and what they say about the original apostles, all of them, except for John, probably died a martyr's death. They died for their faith. And we know from ancient accounts that if you were a believer in Christ and the Romans captured you, you could escape the penalty of death if you simply renounced Jesus. And yet, it it doesn't really make much sense when you think about it. Why would the apostles lie about this and do so to the extent that they would be willing to die for something they knew was, was actually false. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are people who are delusional, who have, uh, you know, a narcissistic personality and believe that they are a Messiah. And maybe they might die because they believe that, but they believe it because they actually think it's true. Even a crazy person wouldn't die for something that they knew was an absolutely a lie. So the question is, what would be the apostles' motivation in creating this, this fictitious account of Jesus' life? When you look at their lives, they died poor. They were persecuted. There was really nothing to suggest that they had any motives other than the fact that they indeed believed that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Others would say, well, maybe David is just describing his own death. Again, you find yourself at a dead end because in 1, Samuel chapter, or, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, the author tells us that David actually died a peaceful death. Not to mention, crucifixion didn't even exist until hundreds of years later when the Persians invented it. So what we have here is really an incredible account a prophecy about something that would take place hundreds of years later. <clears throat> he says, All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, this detail fits with the picture of what happened at the cross where the Roman guards were casting lots over the fine linen and the, and the expensive robe that Pilate gave to Jesus in order to mock him as the king of the Jews. Also, the Old Testament foretold of the Messiah's resurrection. Isaiah 53, verse 5, 7, and 9 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So again, we have this incredible account describing in detail aspects of Jesus' death. And yet, there's this sudden turn in the passage in verse 11 and 12 where Isaiah says, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will seek his offspring and prolong his days. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And so apparently, this suffering servant dies, but then God raises him back to life, to live eternally, which is exactly what the gospel accounts tell us about Jesus Christ. So why would God include all of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? What's the point? I think the reason he would include this is because he knows that we would encounter doubts, skepticism about the Bible because there are so many competing voices out there in the world claiming that they're speaking for God. And so you find yourself really confused wondering, how do I sort through all of that and figure out which is actually true? God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. In other words, God knew that you would have the questions you have, that you would have the skepticism about Christianity that you have. And he provided evidence in the Old Testament so that you can engage Christianity on an intellectual level. You know, contrary to what you think, contrary what I used to, to what I used to think, Christianity isn't irrational. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's evidence-based. Well, he says in verse 5 through 7, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also, among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says grace and peace to you. Familiarize yourself with that word grace because it's going to come up over and over again throughout this book, Romans. And the word grace just simply means the unmerited gift of God. That God gives us the gift of forgiveness, payment through Jesus' death, free of charge. And that we don't have to try to earn our way to him or we don't have to try to please him through our good works, but that we can accept based on faith this grace. You know, when you think about the concept of forgiveness and grace, you know, if you did something, even accidentally, to damage someone else's property, there's a scenario where the person who has incurred the damage has to make a decision. Either I absorb the cost of this damage or I put that cost onto you and make you responsible for it. But somebody has to pay for that, right? And what God is saying is that he 
paid for the damage that we have caused through our wrongdoing. That he has absorbed that in himself. I actually um, had an, an experience at dinner tonight that was uh, very similar. My uh, son, my oldest son, who's seven, broke uh, my younger son's hockey net. And um, of course, my younger son ran into my room, you know, my office as I'm working on my teaching, and he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, you know, Julius broke uh, my net. So I call Julius in, I say, what happened? He's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. It, was, it wasn't my fault, I just broke it. And um, that's a total lie because, you know, when, when I think about his pattern, he's broken lots and lots of things in our house and I've warned him numerous times, <laughs> stop being so reckless, right? And so I sent him a time out and uh, at dinner, I said, okay, look, this is what we're gonna do. We have a decision to make here as a family. So I turned to my youngest son, I said, Julius has money to be able to pay for the damage that he's done to your toy. My question to you is this, do you want him to pay for that or do you wanna just forgive him and accept that he has broken your toy? And I was praying, I was like, God, I hope that he gives Julius grace. And he said, Julius needs to pay. So, you know, me and my wife, you know, our eyes are as big as half dollars and we're just, so, and Julius is just, you know, he looks down. I mean, this thing's gonna cost him like 30 bucks, right? (laughs) So I go back at my younger son again. I'm like, you know, God. (laughs) He loves us a lot and we've done a lot of things wrong, but you know, God forgives us and shows mercy. And you know, you have an opportunity to let Julius off the hook and forgive him. What do you want to do? He said, Julius needs to pay. (laughs) So we're still working on the grace thing, but (laughs) he understands the justice part pretty well. (laughs) But God lavishes us with grace. You know, he absorbed in himself the payment, the, the wrongdoing, the penalty of our sin. And notice the order here. He says, grace and peace. Grace always precedes peace. And that's because God needs to mend what's wrong in our relationship before we can have peace with him. You know, one of the things that I remember as a non-Christian person was just this sense of distance that I felt from God. I felt ashamed to come into his presence. I felt that there was something wrong between us, but what what happened after I received Christ and his forgiveness was this wave of just peace that came over me, that now I could approach God without having to worry. He says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith and it's being reported all over the world God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last by God's will the way you may be open for me to come to you. So again, it seems clear that Paul had never been here. 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So he was eager to go there and to try to build up their faith, impart some knowledge to them. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first of all to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So Paul was eager to get into Rome and to participate in the work that God was doing among the Roman Christians in inviting people to come to Christ. Now again, I think it's interesting that he keeps saying everyone who believes, that it's by faith. And that's a theme that, that comes up over and over again throughout this book, that it's by faith, it's not by works. And then he says, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. To God, there's a priority to make sure that his people, the Jews, first of all, have an opportunity to come to him and then to everyone else. Finally, he says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. It not only starts by putting your faith in Christ, but spiritual growth takes place as a result of faith also. And finally, he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The interesting thing about this verse is that in 1513, a Catholic priest, Martin Luther, read this verse as he was studying the book of Romans, getting ready to lecture it to his students. And he describes how he had an encounter with God, realizing for the very first time that it was by faith, not by works, that one becomes right with God. 200 years later, John Wesley, the father of the Methodist movement, he was at a um, meeting with Moravian Moravian brethren at the Aldersgate Street um, location there in London. And apparently, they were reading Martin Luther's prologue to the book of Romans, and he describes how he felt this strange warming in his heart and describes that as his first encounter experiencing the personal relationship that comes through Jesus Christ. And so this verse, in particular, this quotation from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 has impacted billions of people throughout history. All right, let's draw some conclusions. First of all, Paul has never visited Rome, so he covers theology from A to Z, and we're going to see that next week where Paul starts off with the existence of God. And so if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I would encourage you to come out. We're going to look at questions related to, is science incompatible with God? And that's a big question I think a lot of people in our culture have. And also, 
as we study this, maybe this whole concept of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus has really piqued your interest. Why not devote a few hours of your life to think about these deep questions and figure out whether or not God is real and whether or not he's spoken? All right, why don't we just uh, spend some time praying. Yes, we pray that in the next few weeks that you would um, answer any questions that we have about you. And also, I pray that if we are believers in you, that you would solidify our faith, that you would uh, build a strong foundation as we learn more about evidence for you. And um, we just pray, too, for, um, you know, those of us who are struggling to get under grace and to understand all that you've done for us. I pray that you give us an opening of the eyes, that we can see just how much you love us. And um, we thank you that uh, you started off the book of Romans this way, that it's all about grace. And um, we pray that we can learn more about it as we study. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.